This is a Hot Pie Original. Don't be afraid to take challenges on things that you feel you're not capable of, but don't do too much jumps where you, you really know you're going to fail, right? That's why it's like the, the above one. Big challenges that are, that are, you know, outside your comfort zone and bet on yourself that you're going to be able to learn and grow your capabilities to meet these challenges. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep doing that, you'll always be growing as a person. Raised in a mixed refugee area in Lebanon, Mark Hadar discovered technology at a young age. With aspirations to create a better world through technology, Mark co-founded multiple tech companies in the U.S., including Dialexa, Vinley, Robin, and Rosie. In this episode, we discuss how Mark was smuggled out of Lebanon during the 2006 war and overcame incredible obstacles to co-found two thriving technology companies. We also discuss his approach to challenges and how he builds successful teams. I met Mark in 2019 when we were both going through the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. Mark and I quickly became friends, and he is the one that encouraged me to take a leap of faith and build AIM-7. He also put his money where his mouth was and was the first investor and currently sits on the AIM-7 board. Mark is a compassionate and driven human being that has never seen an obstacle that he cannot overcome. He's an inspiration and has a big heart for people, so listen carefully as everything he says comes from a place of empathy and experience. It's time for the It's Freaking Awesome Story of the Week, brought to you by The Festive Kitchen. Every week, we highlight the stories of people who went above and beyond and thought about someone else before themselves. Now that is freaking awesome. This week, we're featuring high school senior Verda Tata of Fitchburg High School in Massachusetts. An exceptional student headed to Harvard University in the fall, Verda asked that a $40,000 scholarship she earned be given instead to a student attending community college. While accepting the school's General Excellence Award, she shared, I'm so grateful for this, but I also know that I am not the only one who needs this the most. My mom gained a lot out of community college, and it was very helpful to her. And I would be grateful if the administration would consider giving the General Excellence Scholarship to someone attending community college. Emulating all it means to be a steward of knowledge, excellence, and generosity, we are proud to share this freaking awesome story. We need more people in the world like you, Verda. We're immensely excited to see your success in the eminent endeavors at Harvard University. Keep an eye out for a giant bag of It's Freaking Awesome Nosh Mix so you can snack while you study. Before we get to my interview with Mark right now, I want to ask you something. Tell me if you know this story. You go out and spend several hundred dollars on a fancy wearable device, hoping that it'll help you achieve your wellness goals, and then it ends up in the sock drawer. Does that sound familiar? Or how about this one? You follow those cookie-cutter, clickbait health recommendations like walking 10,000 steps a day, and all you get is anxious and demotivated when life gets in the way and you can't hit that magic number. It's a time for evolution of expectation and results, and that's where AIM-7 comes in. AIM-7 sets busy people free to live their values every day by building lifelong healthy habits. We use the health data from your Apple Watch to create small, scientific, personalized recommendations for whatever you want to do. Sleep better, increase your energy, reduce your stress, or lose weight. If you're ready to finally unlock the power of your Apple Watch data, then go to www.aim7.com. That's A-I-M. 7.com to get early access to our exclusive program. AIM 7 starts small and it starts with you, your health data, your values to get to your thriving life. Finally, if you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter adaptation. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Mark, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Good to be here, Eric. So, Mark, you uh, you grew up in a mixed refugee area in Lebanon, and you became fascinated with technologies and computers when you were a kid, when, if I'm right, the UN donated a computer to your school I'm just curious, like, what is it about technology that fascinated you? 
Yeah. Um, I think it's probably in a, in a, in one word, it's empowerment. Um, I still remember the two guys who were carrying the two computers and boxes to our school and, um, installed them and they had uh, two books. It was the Microsoft DOS and, um, GW basic. Um, and, um, and then the first time I actually sat behind a computer and you start writing these commands and then the computer start doing what I told the computer to do. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and it was for the first time in my life where I had something that I had a control over, you know, um, outside it was poverty, wars, death, fights, um, I mean, everything that's you can think of that could prevent a child from dreaming or being inspired to do something. And, but for that computer, they had that computer, I was in control. I can tell the computer what to do and they'll do it for me. And it, it created that spark is that, um, uh, um, you know, where I felt empowered and, um, and I decided to pour all my energy into the things that I can control in my life. How, how old are you when that happened? I was around, say, 12 to 13. Okay. That's an interesting time in a young person's life when you your body's changing. You definitely don't feel like you have control. And then the outside world. And so this was, you know, I've dabbled in in coding. And when I started learning Python, it was like you you do this thing and then this thing happens. And I was like looking at my wife. I'm like, this is so cool. Yeah. You know, and I, I could, it's, a, it's the ultimate creation tool. Uh, so I can, I can understand that when you started your first company, I heard, I've heard that the mission statement was to make $4,000 a year. Am I correct? Yeah. Um, it's all about clarity, right? Yeah. Uh, and setting, uh, right targets. Yeah. I was 17 and, um, uh, got into engineering school and uh, the tuition was $4,000 a year. I was mm. 17. Um, I mean, we didn't have that kind of money, you know, so I had to figure out how to make $4,000. And uh, I started my first company. And what was um, that company? Was, what is it? What was the company? Yeah. So the company basically builds custom technology products, um, you know, for those who wants it. So the first project, one of the first projects I, I, I did was uh, build a, a chair for the handicap, you know, where where you can, you know, for those who, who don't have limbs to be able to control a chair and go from one place to mm-hmm. another. Uh, so I used a um, combination between, between like kind of mechanical engineering and software uh, development to to make that work. And so basically you can control the the chair with buttons or by voice um and have it go from one place to another so that was kind of one of the first projects um you know that i did and from there started doing a lot of other projects and got myself through college so how did you end up getting to the u.s yeah um and that's uh you know, obviously it was always my dream to come to the U.S. Um, one of the things that actually got me hooked, um, was, um, the first time I actually had the Encarta, you know, uh, discs. I don't know if, you know, if you remember those. Oh, I remember floppy uh, discs. <laughs> yeah. And, and, <laughs> and in there, you know, I was starting to read about, um, countries and obviously, you know, everyone knows about the U.S. And so I wanted to read about it and I read the, uh, Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights. And, and I read one of the most powerful sentences that, you know, still up to this day was, you know, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And, and for a child who didn't have any of the three, that was such a powerful statement for me. And, and every time I had a notebook, I would write on it at the beginning, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So I always wanted to come to the U.S., but I always knew that I needed to to learn English. I needed to speak English. I needed to get myself through college and, 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 you know, where I come from, usually you don't get visas easily to the U S right. Right. Um, so I had to figure out how to learn English. So I found pirated, uh, videos of Seinfeld and the Simpsons that were translated to Arabic. And I watch every Seinfeld episode and every, 
uh, a Simpsons episode many, many, many times. And my English got him better, um, you know. Um, you must have had some of- warped perceptions about, <laughs> yes. like, how neighbors enter your house. Like, does everybody just fly in like Kramer? I, yes. <laughs> and, and, and it actually, yeah, it's, um, uh, yeah, you look at it, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and then you go through Simpsons, you know. <laughs> and, and just imagine that. That's how I, you know, that's that was my perception of, of America. But um so anyways, I, I got got myself through college and and I applied, but I knew my chances are really, really slim. And uh, the U.S. visa officer in Lebanon uh, was an urban legend. So people called her Lisa No Visa, mm-hmm. um, which basically, you know, you just you, you don't get a visa. You know, uh, it's really, really, really hard. And, uh, and then um, so that's the first I applied to university. I got accepted to University of George Mercy. Um, and, and part of the process, you have to show the embassy that you have money to pay for a school. And I didn't have $34,000 to show that I had in my bank account. And, um, so anyways, we had a distant relative that had, you know, around $38,000 in their bank account, his bank account. I convinced him to print the, his bank statement and I took it to the embassy and there was my interview and. She started asking me questions and after a little bit, because she saw what schools I went to and where I'm from. So they, you know, kind of the local, you know, kind of, um, geopolitics of, of, of that area. And, um, so she asked me like, how come I know so much about the U S and, and my English was good. And so I told her, I memorized the two best documentaries about the, the U S and she asked me what documentaries and I said, Seinfeld and the Simpsons. And, 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 and she transformed from a, like a completely serious person that she's like really interrogating me to just bursting out, like laughing. And, um, I looked at me and she said, I'm going to do just fine and just need to do a background check. And, mm. um, and they did it three days after my name cleared and um, I got the visa. And a few days after that, the 2006 war started mm. in Lebanon. And um, where we lived, it was um, really right close to the coastline near the highway and the infrastructure that connects uh, South Lebanon with the rest of Lebanon. And most of the war was in South Lebanon. So the first few days, uh, most of the bombing was to destroy all the infrastructure around our neighborhood, which was the power plant, the bridges. So there was the F-16s flying, bombing um, everything around us. And then the ships in the sea um, were just bombing any car that's driving on, on the road. And this was all right next to our house, and uh, which is now, this is like a really tiny place in an apartment. And um, um, and then my dad comes to me um, in the middle of all of this, and he wanted, he was preparing a surprise for me. He said, I've been saving all this money all my life. And, um, and he was very proud. He had a card, a bank card with it. And he said, I want you to take, uh, leave $300 and take the rest and, um, mm. and get, leave the country. His life savings were around $2,200. So that oh was my his entire life savings. And, um, and I was like, man, I can't leave the, the country and leave you all to, to death. And he was like, you know, what are you going to do? You, there's nothing you can do with <laughs> an F-16 throwing a missile at you, you know, mm-hmm. there's just nothing. There's, we're all useless here. You're the only one who can survive and has a shot to, to live because I've got a visa. I can leave the country. Right. So anyways, long story short, he got, we got an oil smuggler to smuggle me through the war zone all the way to, to, to Syria. And then from Syria, went to Turkey and from Turkey, uh, I found a ticket. I got an oil smuggler. York. Oil smuggler. Yeah. <laughs> like I got it, to New York. Oh my goodness. What was the first thing you did when you got to New York? Um, I, I went and saw the Statue of Liberty. I wow. had a couple hundred dollars and, um, the ferry was, I think cost $15 at a time at that time. And, um, I chose to go and see the Statue of Liberty and, uh, and I went there and, and then from there I took a Greyhound bus 
What a powerful um, statement. You don't have much. You have less than $100 in your pocket. You, you know, yeah. you don't really have a means to make money and you're willing to spend 15 to 20% of that, of that to go see the Statue of Liberty. I mean, that is that is what America is all about. Yeah, I mean, there's certain things that are more powerful than any materialistic things are, especially the things that inspire you and drive you to mm. move forward. And to me, it was the ideals um, that this country was built on. And and to me, seeing the the Statue of Liberty was a propelling force for me to move forward and keep going on. And that was worth way more than $15. Mm. So you get to Detroit. Interesting American city to start off in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where did you live? How did you survive? How did you make this thing work? Yeah. Um, so I had, uh, I knew someone in Detroit, a uh, cousin of mine. He was there. The first thing he told me, okay, first of all, we've got to get you a job, you know, because I don't have money, you know, you got to get to work. And I can't work as an engineer because I'm a student visa, you know? So he looked at me and said, like, well, look, look, there's this gas station uh on, on seven by six mile road in detroit no one wants to take the night shift there i can get you an interview you know and i i didn't know like why wouldn't anyone what year is this by the way now, 2006 like right on the you know economic crisis starting to happen so eight mile the movie had already come out Oh yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea. Like I really, I really, I really didn't know why it's called Eight Mile. Oh right? my goodness! Uh, <laughs> so I started working, and I go to an interview, and then just imagine this: this is my second or third day in the U.S., and I'm doing an interview in Detroit uh, at a gas station, and I go in there. I've never been to a gas station or a store in America, so I don't know. Like, what is Reese's? buttercup <laughs> like you know like i really do i really didn't know what is Reese's <clears throat> buttercup you know um <laughs> what is a newport you know i, I just like always said what is an ounce like like just like let's start with that what is an ounce what is a 20 ounce yeah we know? could we could have a whole conversation of why we decided to go from the metric system to inches whatever anyways go ahead yeah so it's like what is all this and, yeah. and, and and to me and it's just and it's all this new environment new things and everyone is no one's speaking arabic like everyone's in english and it's, i mean i spoke you know my english was good but but he's always still afraid, like, how are you going to be perceived, you know? And, and there's always in the beginning, I'm translating things in my mind. So I'm not as fluid, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's always this fear of new environment, fear of saying something stupid and, or, or doing something stupid and, and, um, and knowing how everything works. So I, I literally, he said, do not tell him the, the, the gas station manager that you just came to the US. You got to pretend. <laughs> that you got this. All right. And I was like, all right. So I go in there. I was like, what do I do? So I said, the best way to say is like, tell him like, you know what, let me observe how everything works here. It's just want to make sure to see your flow, your processes and all of that. And then tomorrow I'll come back and, you know, we can try this out. He looked at me, he's like, yeah, what a calculated like, approach for a gas station like, job. Yeah, and he was like, this is a gas station. You know, you so, so I got there and I start drawing all the shelves and I write the names of all the things that are in there. And then I, I print the PLU list from the system, the computer system. He had no idea what looking. he was getting. Yeah, I had no idea. Like, and, and then so so now, even though I don't know Reese's Buttercup, I know it's 126 PLU. So that's easier for my brain. I know. I can memorize a number and stash it to a label without knowing what that is. So the next day showed up and I just, beep, 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 you know, I was just doing a new three pack special is 63. So there's someone there. And, and I got the job. Of course. And, and then, and then I discovered everyone like you were getting someone because they were scared. It was dangerous. And I was like, what are you talking about? There is like a two inches thick glass, like bulletproof glass in there. Oh, was and, this one of those deals where like you slid the drawer open? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the guy. Of and course. I was like, what are you scared of? I mean, even if someone had a gun at me, you're protected here. You and know? where you just came there. from. Yeah. Yeah. Like to me, it was very safe. Like this mm -hmm. is extremely safe, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you've got protection. 
So anyways, I got that. And then I had to figure out how to survive with, with limited amount of money. You know, I thought it was a lot of money, but it is limited amount of money. So it's making around $8 an hour. And so I discovered a few things that were amazing. All right, let's hear First it. First one was, was Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just not avoiding make, doing stupid things. Um, I ended up doing stupid. First of all, I'd never been in a drive-thru and I didn't know the Taco Bell, what Taco Bell sold. In Lebanon, you go to a shawarma place, they just sell shawarma. Right. You go to a falafel place, you you just buy falafel. So I go there, someone told, I told him, what is the cheapest place to get food? And someone told me, just go to Taco Bell. <laughs> so I go to Taco Bell. It is cross, you know, student there. So I walk there and I don't, see, I see cars driving in a line. So what I do, I go stand in the line. Behind you the stood cars. in the line behind a car? With the car. <laughs> and the cars move in there. And then when it was my turn, it's like, what do you want? So I go and just say, I say, can I have two Taco Bells, please? <laughs> and the lady goes like, Taco who? <laughs> You know, and and I was like, I didn't know what to order. So so she asked me like, what do you want? Like, here's the menu, and it's so like, okay, what is the cheapest thing you have on the menu? And she said, cheesy bean and rice burrito was eighty nine cents. So I got a cheesy bean and rice burrito. <laughs> I lived off of that um, Metro PCS, and and then I had to figure out a way to pay my tuition because um, the gas station can't pay that. And then uh, that was a, a whole new story, you know. I've got know you got to tell it though, Mark. I've heard it before. The irony yeah. of the whole situation. Yeah. So so <laughs> I had to figure out how to pay my tuition, and then uh, school I was at, they were working on a research grant uh, to get a research grant from the U.S. military, Bank and Automotive Robotics Department. Um, and so I go there to meet the chairman of engineering, you know, back in the day, uh, at that time. And he wanted me to be teaching assistant. <clears throat> and I looked at it as like, well, I can maximum work like 10 hours a week. They pay me $10 an hour. I mean, that's just, I'm minting it at the gas station, That mm-hmm. that's not gonna <laughs> yeah. <hurt> for me. <laughs> and I need, I need something better than that. And so I, I, I knew that they'd work on that research. And so I went there, I told him, can I help you with this research? And then uh, make me a research, have me become a research assistant and waive my tuition for that. Um, he said, well, we don't know if you're going to get that. We're going to get the grant and we still have a few things we need to answer. And, you know, so well, can I help with that? And he's like, yeah. So I go and it was a gas station at night. So I want to imagine this, this guy from South Lebanon working in a gas station at night and I start working, writing a grant for the U.S. military. And, um, <laughs> we write it and they get the, we get the grant and, uh, that research really changed my life. Um, where, uh, you know, building kind of a system for inter-inter-vehicular communication, um, you know, for battlefield situation assessment to predict when the cars or Humvees or any of the equipment are going to break. Um, so ended up being a research assistant, kept working at a gas station and I was a master's uh, student. So that gave me like four or five hours a day of sleep. And, um, you know, definitely wasn't healthy, but I, I had to do it kind of like almost you have 24 hours a day and you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. How long did this last? Almost, um, yeah, two years. Wow. Yeah, until, until I get, yeah, two years. But I graduated, had no debt, had some money in the bank, um, you know, and, um, yeah, and then moved to Dallas. And how'd you choose Dallas? My ex wife used to, to live here. Gotcha. And she's getting her master's degree. And I was like, you know, I know, man, I was like, you know what? I, I want to go to the promised land, the Silicon Valley one day. He says, so I'll come here for one year. And uh, yeah, 10 years later. It's the Texas Silicon Valley, man. It's a different type of place. Well, I'll tell you one thing about Texas, and this is why I'm here. Um, I wasn't born an American, but I've always been Texan and I'd never knew about it. I, I, I didn't know, you know, until I came here. You know, you feel like you always belong somewhere, yes. but but you didn't know where. 
And that happened to me. Like when I came to Texas, I knew I belonged here. You know, I love this state. Mm. I love the people. And then I'm, I'm so glad I ended up coming here. You and I share that passion. I've lived all over the United States and there's only one place I call home. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a special place with very special people and it's a melting pot. I don't think many people really understand mm. that where I live in Houston is the most diverse County in America. Yeah. And uh, nobody on my street looks like me, which is awesome. Like we have really good conversations with diverse people and the ideas are flowing and there's a lot of languages spoken. And it's just I grew up in the Richardson area with the telecom corridor. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Northern Telecom, remember all these big companies where that whole thing blew up. But yeah, um, yeah, I could see why you were attracted to it. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick second to thank one of our awesome sponsors. Let's talk about the snack that's freaking addicting. It's freaking awesome. Well, it is freaking awesome, but that's actually the name of the snack. It's freaking awesome. It's freaking awesome is a nosh snack bag, a sweet, salty, crunchy snack with a kick. This snack has corrupted the palates of NCAA athletes to 87-year-old grandmothers. So if you have a road trip coming up or there's someone you want to tell they're freaking awesome, then order now online at itsfreakingawesome.com. It tastes as cool as it sounds. Brace yourselves. You'll be ordering frequently for your monthly freaking fix. The good news is now they have a freaking monthly subscription. It's Freaking Awesome is dedicated to snacking it forward. Each pouch features one of our fallen heroes and 30 cents from every unit sold is donated to Carry the Load, a charity founded by Clint Bruce, benefiting those who have given the ultimate sacrifice in our military, firefighters, police, and rescue personnel. Available online at itsfreakingawesome.com. That's I-T-S-F-R-E-A-K-I-N, awesome.com. You started your first company in the U.S., Dialexa, with what you, I think it's 50 bucks. Yeah. Uh, me and uh, my business partner, Scott Harper. What was uh, your vision? Was the, minimum. the vision we wanted to, we realized that every company is going to become a tech company, you know, whether, you know, they know it or not. Technology is going to be at the epicenter of running any new business. But the challenge is there's, you know, most of the talent and, and technology thinking and product technology product thinking was only in these big companies like Google or Apple. And, um, so we ask ourselves, I mean, if you look at the iPhone, it's uh, technically 15 people designed the iPhone. It's not like the hundreds of thousands of people there. It's the 15 people who came up with the concept, the idea, designed all of that, and then went and mobilized this across the organization. So we ask ourselves, could we build a company that brings that kind of thinking, that kind of talent, that kind of uh, abilities to any company Mm. in the United States, you know, where if they want to innovate and want to build a new technology product and to transform their business, we will be there for them, you know, and our ability to take things from a design, from a concept to a technology product, we felt that was kind of our niche. A lot of people told us, hey, bet on the mobile apps. Everyone wants a mobile app. And we're like, no, we're going to be taking more of a product-centric approach. Mm. And and our mission is to help these companies to innovate and be better. And then not just through mobile. And uh, that was our initial vision. Uh, but we had a lot of uh, vision with, uh, with little money, <laughs> little amount of money. And uh, the minimum amount of Bank of America back then was uh, to open a bank account was 50 bucks. And so I put $25, Scott Harper, my business partner, put $25 and um, we started the company. Well, who did you, who did you first convince to work, like to work with you? Like, did you find a company and say, Hey, like we can help you. How did you start this thing? Cause Dialex is, it's big now. Like when I went to your offices, they're gorgeous. I love the feel. It's vibrant. You can feel things like the energy and the creativity, but you had to start somewhere. Like where did it start? Yeah. Well, you're talking about the office. We need to start with getting a place to put our, (laughs) to work at. So there was a co-working space here in in Dallas called Cohabitat. And uh, the, the person who was managing or, you know, that, that space, um, he had his own startup. 
and he needed help to build a product. So we went and pitched him, hey, could you give us office space and we'll build your product? I love it. And uh, that was the, that was the, that's how we got our first office. Um, um, and then the second, uh, um, I'd say that it was the third, which actually kind of started getting enough money for us to start growing the company, uh, was a, um, a company that's really, uh, trying to change the way dental implants are done. And, uh, um, it was founded by the guy who invented invisible braces, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, um, anyways, he wanted to change the way you do dental implants where you take these 2D, uh, medical.com cat scans and uh, put them in a software and then automatically detect which tooth you want to change and create a mm. 3D model of it. And then goes into a six axis milling machine and then prints the tooth from root to tip, right? So the process would be, you'd go there, they take the scans. And then the next time there's a perfect replica of your tooth, you know, take it out and we're doing it. Now, obviously, (laughs) you know, they were looking for companies and actually they were talking to to us around, Hey, do you know someone who could do something like that? You know, because they were struggling to find a company that would do it. It's just a fairly complex And you went like this. And I'm like, yeah, we can do it. And um, I've never been to a dentist in my life at that point, just to, to put that in perspective. So I don't know how dentists even work, you know, like you've just never been. To, oh, my to goodness. And and uh, you can afford. Yeah, I get there, it. You know, so, so, so it's just. <laughs> and all of a sudden I had to go. And he was like, man, you guys just a couple of young People, you know, a lot of dreams. I don't know if you can do it. It's like, well, why don't you give it to us in small chunks? Yeah. You know, give us the first project. We can do this. We know you need this. And then if we're able to deliver it, it's great. If not, at least you get this, you know, right. like, like you get small incremental value with these small chunks. And you only make a bet when you believe that we can do the next phase, right? And he was like, he liked that approach. And um, and all of a sudden, I had to learn a lot about teeth and medical imaging and and all of that stuff. And then six months later, we we got the project. I love it. You know, done done for them. And yeah, I just love the fact that you're you know you don't shy away from a challenge at all. What is your mindset when you're like coming up against these big challenges? Like, how do you approach these things? I mean, you've never been to a dentist. They want you to create something that's off the wall and you're like, I got it. Like, what is your mindset? Yeah, I I have, I've always lived by a ratio I made up in my mind. It's called the B to C ratio. um, And which is balls to capabilities ratio. It needs to be above one and less than two, you know, (laughs) (laughs) So, so basically, um, don't be afraid to take challenges and things that you feel you're not capable of, but don't do too much jumps where you, you really know you're going to fail, right? That's why it's like the, the above one. Mm-hmm. Take challenges that are, that are, you know, outside your comfort zone and bet on yourself that you're going to be able to learn and grow your capabilities to meet these challenges. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep doing that, you'll always be growing as a person, you know? And, and if you say, if your BTC ratio is one, then you're always doing things that you are fully capable mm-hmm. of doing. You'll never grow. You'll always achieve the task that you put in mind. You know, you go beyond that. You'll always start pushing yourself further and farther and you start growing and you always put yourself in in this and discomfort and being comfortable or excited about being uncomfortable is kind of the key there. You know, um, if, if, if being comfortable and relaxed around what you're doing is what excites you, it's not, you're not going to find growth there, you know? Um, so that's kind of like one, one of the main elements that, that got me to the level where, you know, you know, taking more risks and, and be more comfortable with it. It reminds me kind of of OKRs, objectives and key results. I don't know if you've read the book, Measure yeah. What Matters. Yeah. And we've implemented that with AIM-7. And one of the things that I really like is if the objective doesn't scare you a little bit, yeah. if it's not like 70% is a win. Yeah. And so like if you or your team is not setting objectives that are stretching you, 
then yeah. you're never gonna you're never gonna you're never gonna grow and adapt. And that's mm. kind. It's kind of sounds like a similar thing. Is there a cadence of? Do you guys implement anything like that in your organizations to continue to not only lead by stretching, but asking people to stretch themselves? Yeah, <laughs> I, I uh, yeah, having at this point managed a lot of people, like really incredible human beings. And I see the consistent piece elements is two things. Number one is that most of people underestimate how magnificent they are. You know, they always underestimate what they're capable of doing. And it always shocks me when people do not believe that they can achieve amazing things. You know, and so that's the first piece that you, that, and the second piece is that because of that, they always start end up putting, giving themselves, um, lower expectations and, and not as hard enough goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not because they're lazy. It's just, they didn't believe that they really can do that. Right. So what we end up doing, and this is something we, we do in, in, in our companies is that, is that we do two things. We tell people like we, anytime we hire someone to work with is that number one fact is that we believe you are an exceptional human being capable of doing amazing things. That's why you're here. Number two, because you are an exceptional human being capable of achieving great things, our expectations of you is that you're going to perform at that level. Mm. Right. So, so, um, we're not going to lower expectations for a person just to meet their capabilities. We're going to put high expectation because we genuinely believe they're incredible people. Right. Mm-hmm. And then where management happens and companies that could you create an environment that embraces that because part of that growth is that you're going to put people in an extremely uncomfortable situation and an extremely stress intense, stress intense environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then are you giving them the things they need throughout the way to grow? Right. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you, are you okay with them failing many times? to get there. Right. Um, and I think that's where, you know, um, you know, that reciprocal relationship where the company creates that and fosters that environment and the person putting the time and effort and energy and focus into that creates a, an extremely successful environment. And then you start seeing people growing at an exponential speed. And I think that's the most gratifying thing to me in starting companies, not just the, the product is the people that start with you and then you start seeing them growing and growing and growing and, and every day just becoming better and better and better. And uh, um, I don't know if that answers. No, the question it, or not. it absolutely does. Um, I know Google did some study on like on risk taking and they found that psychological safety was one of the critical elements for people willing to be t- to enable people to take risks like they got to be able to know that they can fail. How do you communicate yeah. that with somebody like we want you to push yourself and there's there's a a margin of acceptable failure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's basically tell them that every time we're doing something we're making a bet. You know, there's nothing guaranteed. And I think when everyone I mean in our company is just a family. We tell people everything. We tell people our finances, we tell people what's happening, what are the challenges, tell them the the scenarios that could happen if we close a deal, not close a deal. And, and we tell people, this is going to be uncomfortable. We may fail. We may succeed, you know, um, and we are making certain bets that could fail. And I think starting from scratch that we are making, creating businesses is all about making certain bets. And then knowing and acknowledging that you are making a bet, it is implicit within that, that bets may not pay off. Right. Right. And we tell them, but the ultimate bet that we're always making is on the ability of people, our people to adapt to these challenges and adapt to failures. Right. And this is the biggest bet we're always making. Yeah. So, so even though we tell people it's okay to fail, but we are betting on you that when failure happens to adapt and change and fight back, you know, you get punched in the face, you go on the ground. 
you, you're going to have to get up, you know, work on getting up, you know? And I think that's the piece where, you know, that kind of culture um, or kind of also the reciprocal kind of type of, um, you know, social contract you have between people in, inside the company um, enables people to be okay with failure, but also be uh, know that a failure is only a temporary transient state mm-hmm. not the end goal you know it's not like oh we failed bye-bye you know it's not, <laughs> oh you failed okay now what you know let's try something that's where else, slack you know? came from i don't know if you know the story of slack but this i can't remember the ceo's name but twice he tried to create this infinite video game and he, yeah. he had a company and then the company did well and he's like, all right, I'm going to go back and build this infinite video game. So they're building this infinite video game, he, you know, because he was successful before he got a lot of capital to start and the company fails. Well, as they're closing the doors, he's like, you know, he tells everybody, look, I'm going to get you a job. Okay. We're going to take care of you. I'm going to do the right thing by the investors. We're going to stop this now. And somebody's like, you know, we have this like internal messaging system. That's like so cool. What if we made that into a product? So him and like two other people stayed behind, built that, rehired everybody, and then Slack, right? It was it was a dot on the map. It wasn't the final story. Even when it was like they're down like eight, nine, (laughs) they got up billion dollar company. And so I, you know, you know that I I I connect with that as a as a former athlete and coach. I just love your fighters mentality. Another question I have for you is, and, and this has been in my head ever since you started talking about the, the gas station interview, is how do you interview people knowing that there's a backstory there? Yeah. Like, because like that guy could have met you and been like, he doesn't speak English very well, or he's unsure of himself, or you're actually just processing information. Mm-hmm. He de- he may or may not have known that you had an engineering degree. Yeah. So h- what do you do in your hiring practices yeah. to like really try to give yourself the best opportunity to understand the person in front of you? Yeah. And to let them kind of let themselves come out. Yeah. Um, honestly, there's only one question that matters mm-hmm. is why is there? Why? Why does this person do what they do every single day? If you can unlock that, you and that aligns with with you. That's the that's the key. So what I do now is, uh, I don't usually. I, I honestly I don't interview anyone for their technical abilities and their experience in the past and their resume. I usually just shred the resume before. I don't want to even look at the resume, you know, because usually when when they someone gets to you know right you know, now in an interview, we know that he's here or she's here. They're good. They've got the background. You know, there's no need to hash that. It's more about why. And I structure, I, I, there's an exercise I do. I actually learned it at the presidential leadership scholars. And it was uh, the first time I had a structure around getting someone's why. And uh, there's an exercise I do. It's called the nine whys. And so you start with the premise of like, you know, what do you do? You're like, what is your job? Like, you know, what do you think? Well, let's just say someone is a software developer, right? Well, I write code every day. And you should say, why do you do that? So that's the first why. And then they're going to answer it. And then based on their answer, you go and say, but why do you do that? Why? And then that's the second one. And you keep doing that. And you're going to sound like a five-year-old kid just saying, why, why, why? And here's the interesting thing that I've seen interviewing people. Everything before, like the first five whys, is very rhetorical. Because I want to change the world, you know, because I like programming, uh, you know, or, um, you know, you know, because this is really good. I like creating, you know. It's very rhetorical, very, a lot of it is narrative. And then at the fifth why, you know, from there on, it starts becoming emotional. You start to connecting to why. And, and most of it, Eric, most of it, they start ending up talking about their childhood, how they were raised, the environment they're in. Someone would tell you, my father used to take me every day to work and he used to do this, mm-hmm. you know, um, or uh, I grew up in this environment. I don't want to change my life. I don't want to do better, you know, or, or the values of my family 
then you start getting into someone's core, their values, their motivations, what drives them. I never hire anyone that is not motivated and does not believe that it is an absolute gift that for them to exist on earth and they want to use this time to make a difference, mm. right? So if someone's why is not strong enough, you know, on driving and, and because it's really hard to give someone's why and, and work, these things that like become ingrained in you, you know? Um, so that's the piece, you know, if someone has a really strong why, what ends up happening, there's certain things you can't give someone, teach someone values, certain values. You can't tell someone driving and motivation very quickly. Um, but you can teach someone skill set. I hired a lot of people. I hired someone like a developer. He's one of my best front end developers. He was a music teacher, middle school music teacher. He knew nothing about programming, hmm. but that person's why was so powerful. And, and, um, and he said, you're willing to do what it takes. And within, a year and a half, he became one of the most senior people in there, you know, because you can teach something in a book of how to write code, but you can't teach someone in a book, you know, how to have integrity, values, mm. drive. You no, know, these things are, it's not like not teachable, but it takes a really long time and life experiences to shape that in you. Wow. Now, I, that is such a powerful, powerful example of excellent leadership. Um, because there's a lot of underdogs out there that just need an opportunity. I was just interviewing somebody recently as an intern and I was like, why, you know, we, it, it was this why thing. And it was like, why is data mean so much to you? Why is this yeah. so important? Data science intern. And we finally got to this thing where he was, uh, he was somebody that had to overcome like body composition issues. Yeah. And then, and then it all started tumbling out. I'm like, bingo. You know, yeah. and I just know as somebody that's, I, I think in a, a lot of people can, um, can have empathy for feeling like that they're undervalued. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I just, I just love the beauty of how you're, you're finding great people. Cause I have met a lot of people in your organizations and they've all, they're all just fascinating human beings with, yeah. with great stories and, 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 and unbelievable motivation. So. Mark, in every episode, we ask people several questions. And the first one we always ask is, or I always ask is, what does high performance mean to you? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to me, high performance is not about being perfect. It is about living and being the best version of yourself with growth at the epicenter of it. You know, that's why high performance is a never ending process to me because it evolves as you evolve. Mm. You know, the you, the version of you 10 years from now, as you grow is different from the you right now. Right. So that's why high performance is always being the best version of yourself as yourself evolves with time. Mm. Yeah. So how do you define it at any given point of time? Working towards being that best version of yourself, to me, that is high performance. I love it. What what practices or habits have you adopted personally to help you continue to perform at a high level? Because, you know, you've evolved as a person. You've mm -hmm. evolved as a leader. What are the things that you do to help you continue to grow and become the best version of yourself? Yeah, I, mean, I think there are a few things, say probably five things, you know, I, I follow with, with, with a lot of regimen. Number one, which is the most important one, is being overly protective of your time. Hmm. Very protective. You know, this is the only thing that you have that has so much scarcity. You have such a limited time during the day and such a limited time on Earth. It's a blank. You know, what you do in that time is the most important thing, you know, like where you spend your time is going to define where you're going to be, you know, and so being overly protective of that time and being regimented around um, who you're going to meet, who you're going to talk to, what are you going to be working on? What are you going to do? So it's really important. And because of that overarching theme of protection of time, you start ending up with all the other things, you know, that I follow, you know, the second one is obviously the B2C ratio. I told you about that. I never want to do something 
where it matches my capabilities. I always want to do things that are beyond my capabilities, you know, because that enables me to to grow all the time. Number three, and I learned this recently um, and gave me a lot of clarity is um, is work. Do you think you know your your personal compass in life is your va- are your values mm-hmm. as a human being? And it surprises me how little people actually think about what their are their internal values. Like you to go into companies like well, our values are integrity and love and change the world, you know. And it's just someone thought of a, these things sound great, you know. Mm-hmm. If you really dig deep into a human, every human being has a very different va- top three values that really drive them. You know, your values are not your destination; it's their compass, right? So really defining your compass and knowing your compass is really important because then you start knowing how you make decisions. Mm -hmm. So I went through an exercise personally on what are my top three values, right? What are the values that I'm not willing to compromise, right? And and you start realizing, well, there's 160 plus great values. No one questions that there are amazing values, but what are the top three that if anything messes with those, this is where you get triggered as a person. Like, you know, this is like, you feel like this is something really wrong there. Uh, so I follow my values, my top three values. And anytime I make a decision, that is usually my compass, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really important to do that. And definitely I find this a great thing for anyone, you know, to do is to find their own values and know what their internal compass. Uh, number four, um, you know, do things and live life with purpose, you know, and having purpose is really important. You know, you know, usually you're not going to, you know, a great, a great purpose means that you're probably not going to achieve it. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing purpose, you know, Mm -hmm. but that's just something you live towards, you know, and, and that, that shapes the journey in your life. You know, what is your purpose in life? Why are you there? Um, Do you, do you want to just be here and leave just in a blink or you want to leave, any kind of footprint, whether through you, through your work, through your kids, through your family, through the feelings and emotions that you instilled in people that interacted with you. What is, let's just say, Eric's footprint in this world, right? Or Mark's footprint in this world. What is it? You know, uh, and define that. And everyone is different, you know? And then the last one is I'm regimented around my yearly blueprint. I don't do yearly goals. I don't do define my days in every single task and I want to do 500 things. I just say, here's my year and I want to do three things around my three values. You know, my personal values are family, growth and contribution. You know, mm-hmm. I want to do something in the family, something to enable me to grow and something to contribute with. Right. And these are my three values and I want to make sure I'm living up to my values, you know, and, um, and with that, um, build that blueprint and, and I do a goal on each of those and, and that defines my year, you know? Um, so now when I do anything, if I want to do a meeting or I want to do travel somewhere or do <laughs> anything is that it needs to be respectful of my time as a BTC ratio. It is conformed to my goals, goes to my purpose, and and conforms to my objectives yearly blueprint for this year. That enables me to. Sorry, that's a beautiful mental model. It simplifies things. Yeah. And with somebody like yourself that's being bombarded with complexity, having simple heuristics makes it so much easier. Yeah. Gosh, I I I wrote all these down. I'm going to be marinating on this for a while. Thank you for sharing that. The last question I have for you is, and I guess this would kind of fall into your blueprint this year is what are you doing right now to grow personally? Yeah. Um, well, so, so again, I, I put, I always put myself in, in these situations where I'm like really hard. Um, I decided I wanted to fly and I wanted to learn flying and <laughs> And this year, I'm going to end up being a uh, uh, commercial instrument-rated jet pilot. <laughs> that is awesome. I, I personally love following your Instagram and seeing you take off from Love Field 
not knowing where you're headed. Yeah. I, I, I just love that. I love the freedom. It was uncomfortable. You know, I, I used to be afraid of planes. Really? Because I used to see the underbelly of M16 bombing mm. our neighborhood. So I looked at it and I had a very different experience of that. Mm. And, and I said, screw that. I'm going to fly an F-16. And <laughs> so Warren's going to get me there. And I started, you know, it's the got into flying and I learned it and, and, and I ended up loving this, mm. you know, and it really changed our life. And I picked flying. So also it touches all our, our, you know, kind of at least two of the three goal uh, values. It's creating now an experience for me and my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, to fly places and go places, um, so it's it's incredible in that in that uh, in that aspect and also growth aspect. You know, you learn, you fly, you're always meeting new people, going to new places. And all of a sudden, now we fly to all these super remote places in in the U.S. and and I've fallen again and love again in America, in America because you start going, seeing how beautiful this country is. Mm. You know, most of people live in the cities, which are almost very similar to each other. But then you go into the vastness of the country. It is one of the most beautiful places on earth. You've got mountains, beaches, deserts, mm-hmm. and amazing people, you know, all, all around. And flying enabled me to do that. So that's an example around growth, right? Mm-hmm. This is for you. Next year, I want to do get into astronomy, right? And so that's kind of, you know, pre- preparing for a next year goal. But every year, I want to learn something new and i want to have a really strong command in it not like oh, i'm just going to read a book no i'm you know gonna learn flying i'm gonna fly I'm gonna do astronomy i'm gonna i want to learn as much as i can about astronomy and be have a really strong command of it, right mm-hmm. of it. so that's kind of the the element you know do that and you only can do that if you're protective of your time you know like you don't you know i'm just gonna go schmooze right now or i want to do this you know for me, I care more. I get a lot of joy from learning and growing rather than doing other things. It doesn't mean that's the right thing. That's the blueprint for everybody. But you got to look at you as a person. What are your three values? And then start spending your time in there. And I promise you, it brings so much joy into your life because you feel at peace, inner peace. Is so that what you're doing hmm. rhymes with your like internal harmony, right? Like whatever, like giving you internal harmony, you know, and when these mesh together, you're able to do a lot of things. And all of a sudden you you can start realizing how much you can accomplish in 24 hours a day. Mark, this has been for me, one of the most rewarding podcasts I've ever done on a lot of levels, because we are coming up <clears throat> on June 10th when AIM 7 was started. I just realized this. Yeah. And uh, I'm, first of all, I just want to thank you for being a part of that journey and knowing how much you protect your time that you would take time for us today to share these, this, your nuggets of wisdom and your learnings. I hope the people that listened took copious notes because, and we'll provide uh, a transcript on this because there's a lot of, a lot of gold in here that if you just, if you apply simple things to your life, it can be a great like, you know, like you said, a compass, you have a North star and all those things are going to change. Like you have a direction that you're going. How can people find you? Like if I, if they have some crazy idea of a product they want to build, how can they, how can they get Dialexa services? Just go to Dialexa.com. Yeah. I mean, Dialexa.com, <clears throat> you have a lot of, you know, people there. Um, you know, um, if you want you know, do something in the automotive, go to Finlay.com. Yeah. We didn't even get to talk about that yet. Dot com and um and 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 check out all all, all the work uh, there and I'm available on Twitter Mark Hadar yeah that's my Twitter handle um uh, I think that's, that's <laughs> well, it. well Mark thank you so much for coming today this was a blast for me and I'm just very thankful for you and for your friendship oh I'm I'm thankful for our friendship um, you know Eric and and what you're doing with aim seven is, is truly inspiring. It's, it's almost like everything I, I talked about in an app, you know, and it, it is, it is incredible. It's available. It'd be available on the phone or click on a button. And, um, that's why I, I believed in aim seven because of the concept, but also at the same time, because of the incredible human being that started it. And mm. you always bet on people and your why is strong, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I appreciate having you on today. 
If today's podcast enriched your life in any way, please support The Blueprint by doing one of the following. If you're listening on an audio platform like Apple or Spotify, please subscribe. If you're listening on Apple, please leave us a five-star review and some feedback. Your feedback is tremendously valuable. Finally, if you watch this on YouTube, please leave us some feedback there as well. We'd love to know how we can improve the show and what topics you are enjoying. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.